not saying that these things are necessarily unique to journalism. But journalism is so significant and the press is so important to our way of life uh, and to our society that is, in many ways they're held to a different standard than perhaps some other social institutions. That's Dr. Lori Latrice Martin. She's actually not a journalist, but a professor in LSU's Department of Sociology and Department of African and African American Studies. So we're clear she's my former professor for a race and sports class I took at LSU in the spring of 2014. And I think she's awesome. She's written a lot of books. Topics range from race, ethnicity, and wealth, the school to prison pipeline, South Baton Rouge, and racism and racial disparities in sports. We talk about telling the whole story when reporting on topics that involve race and society, and she gives tips on how to do just that. One of her books is titled Out of Bounds, and I wanted to think outside of the box for this episode. So I talk to the person journalists usually cite for stories. Be sure to rate, share, and subscribe on iTunes, but if you have any thoughts or questions you'd like to share with me, you can do that using hashtag BLBpodcast or going to blbpodcast.com. Here's our conversation. And I think something I've always noticed, not just because we had to, we read from like one of your books in class, but like you were like a, you're a published author, but also like you have so many books on various topics. Right. So when, like when along the line of like, you know, you're in higher education, did you decide or what kind of sparked your interest in writing and researching about the many topics you, you work on? Yeah, so um, yeah, I thought a lot about that over the last few years, trying to pinpoint when all that started. And so you know, I could point to working on my um, master's um, degree and being really passionate about black churches and community and economic development and developing a passion there. Um, I also had a uh, an internship with a statistician in. Um, well, she was um, in the School of Occupational Therapy, so she really taught me the nuts and bolts of publishing. So I've always had a gift, I think, for writing, and I've always loved to write, uh, but I didn't really fully understand the mechanics of academic writing. And so um, Dr. Machiko Tamita, she really taught me uh, the mechanics of that. So I was able to match my passion and gift for writing with the mechanics of the um, academic um, stuff of writing. But I would say also, too, that in the public school system that I went through, in sixth grade, my teacher, Miss Nash, she had us cutting out um, newspaper articles about apartheid in South Africa. Uh, when I was in high school, I was part of the Afro-Am Club. So whether I knew it or not, and I was raised in black churches, whether I knew it or not, the issues about race and ethnicity were always around me, and they were always significant and important. But I didn't really marry that with my interest in writing and uh, what I would say is a gift for writing until I got into higher ed. So since then, since being in higher ed, have you ever thought about or had an interest even slightly in uh, working as a journalist or of any sort? No, so um, I found increasingly that I can't even watch um, the news anymore. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, and it's, it's terrible because I need to be informed. I need to know what's going on in society. But the slant that I sometimes hear on, different programs, whether it's a, um, 
you know, whether it's MSNBC or whether it's CNN or if it's the five minutes I can tolerate uh, Fox News, uh, it's just it's just challenging. And even uh, for local newspapers, I know you uh, published an advocate following your uh, career. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the way in which stories are presented is just really aggravating. So it's hard to even think about. Uh, you know, wanting to have a career in in journalism, uh, as I have so many uh, problems with it, as I do with other social institutions. I'm not saying that these things are necessarily unique to journalism, but journalism is so significant and the press is so important to our way of life uh, and to our society that is, in many ways they're held to a different standard than perhaps some other social institutions. Why is journalism so important as a whole? Yeah, so journalism is important for a number of reasons. One, it allows people to communicate information, whether that's information about an event that you have going on, whether it's information about flood relief, if it's an update on the status of a shooting that took place in the community. It's important for for people uh, to be informed. But what's also important, too, is to understand that as a social institution that the media, like every other social institution, is an agent of socialization. So it communicates to the world um, the process of, of society. Um, uh, it tells us how you know we should behave in different circumstances. It communicates what is valued and whom is valued. And so um, it's important that when we're reading papers, when we're... Um, reading, you know, um, blogs, uh, when we're watching television, that we're, we understand that there are these dominant narratives, whether they're racial narratives, whether they're gender narratives, and that we have to you know, be uh, consumers that are informed and also uh, critical thinkers. So what is something, I know you say, like, I, for instance, I, um, I'll do newspaper, since I work in a newspaper too, but what's something that you're like, you're reading on a website and what's something that you see that you're like, nope, I'm not, I'm not even doing this. Like it just bothers you. You got to cook off. <laughs> well, it, sometimes it can be just a title. So um, it may be a story that I'm aware of, but the way that the headline is presented is slanted in a particular way as to vilifying an individual or um, something of that nature. And so, uh, in those instances, I, I don't even want to be bothered with reading it because it's, to me, it's uh, I can say it's like a Tyler Perry movie, which, um, as you may remember, I'm not necessarily a big fan of. Uh, but I say that because if you've watched a couple Tyler Perry movies, you pretty much know the plot and you know how they're going to end. And so uh, with some of these headlines and some of these articles, especially if they relate to issues of race, if they relate to issues of social that I already know what the content is going to be about before I read it and what the dominant narrative is that's being set forward. And so I just move on to another article. As somebody who does um, like research and reading like all the time, what do you think causes that slant that, I mean, it's very popular. Like, it's kind of like a, a thing other journalists like Columbia Journalism Review, you know, they study as well. And it's like kind of a thing that by now when people are doing it, they're like, you know, you probably shouldn't. What do you think causes stuff like that, especially on a local level? 
that um, we make the mistake of thinking that um, journalists don't have experiences, that they don't have values, um, and that, like, you know, even with social scientists, some people like to argue that you check all those things at the door and that you're just purely working with the scientific method and that you're very objective. And, of course, we try to be objective and to control for a host of factors. But um, our experiences, our history, our biography come into play. And so the way that some journalists uh, see particular stories is part of their history and part of uh, their biography. They're also part of an institution and part of a corporation. And so uh, we may talk about a free press, but that doesn't mean that as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, that you are free to say whatever you think and to do whatever story that you want to do. Uh, in many instances, and you know this better than I do, you may have an editorial board that's determining what in fact is news. And so you have people, uh, laypersons, elected officials, uh, advocacy groups that are fighting hard to try to get their particular topics on the agenda and people are simply not interested. I'm thinking about a recent campaign that you might know about. People are talking, at least on social media, about all the black children and black women, for example, that are missing and have been missing for, you know, a very long time. Whereas for other groups, members of the dominant group, if someone is missing, it, there's more coverage given on a local, state, and national uh, level. So we don't want to assume that journalists are value-free and value-neutral and apolitical. Uh, they are influenced by all of the systems that impact every other social institution, whether that's racism, sexism, classism, and the like. So, I mean, I started this podcast based on the idea that diversity influence coverage, whether it's topics, how things are covered, etc. Do you think having a diverse pool of people in the newsroom could positively affect the way things are reported or? Yeah, so I think that diversity is really important, but we don't want to confuse diversity with just the presence of people of color. So, for example, I was looking at the um, National Association, I believe, of Black uh, Journalists, mm -hmm. and some of the data they have based upon a census that was conducted recently, and it mentions that, while you know, a third of the population are people of color, that the number of people of color that are journalists are in the single digits, you know, and, that, and that's a problem. But also, um, it's not enough just to have people who visually, um, you know, appear to be people of color, but you also need people um, in decision-making positions not only are people of color, or even if they're not, but have a level of consciousness and a level of uh, education and understanding about the experiences of diverse groups. And so when you have people in decision-making positions like that, then you never end up with a commercial like Pepsi and the black, you know, the spin on the on Black Lives Matter and some other issues that people wonder how did it ever make the light of day. Well, probably because you don't have a lot of people, um, not just people of color, but people that have the right consciousness and understanding about history and about life and about the experiences of historically disadvantaged groups um, in the you know around the table where these decisions are being made. 
So I wanted to read an excerpt from your January piece on the academicminute.org. Baton Rouge was a divided city long before this summer when the world watched as Alton Sterling took his last breath on the concrete outside a local business. It came as no surprise to people with a firm grasp of local and national history that the epidemic of assault on black and brown bodies made its way to Louisiana's capital. So is it not just diversity, but also taking the time to understand where you're living and the history of where you're living and everything that goes along with it? For anyone, whether you're a researcher, whether you're a journalist, you have to be very serious about uh, your subject matter and um, be honest about what you know and what you don't know, what you need to learn and perhaps what you need to unlearn. So thinking about um, last summer, thinking about all of the reporters that reached out uh, to me, thinking especially about the international reporters, they didn't have much of an understanding about race relations in Baton Rouge, and so what did they do? They asked questions. They said, well, you know, were there any incidences in Baton Rouge prior to this? What were race relations like before that? And so that gave me an opportunity to go back. Um, I didn't go back as far as the enslavement era, but I was able to talk about the Baton Rouge bus boycott. I was able to talk about how segregated North and South Baton Rouge are. I was able to talk about the um, St. George Initiative. I, could, mm. I provided some of the um, uh, international uh, journalists with um, – Maps to show visually how blacks and whites are separate uh, in Baton Rouge and have been for some time. So providing them with um, the resources that they didn't have and they know they needed was important. And then to get follow-up um, uh, calls and emails from them when they went to, for example, predominantly white churches who were hosting vigils, and they said that they spoke to the predominantly white audience there, and the white individuals there um, that they spoke with said that they didn't think that Baton Rouge had a race problem or that race was an issue. And so they clearly have, you know, having all the information that I provided them with and other people provided them with were confused and said, how could this be? Is this really the nature of the problem that you have some whites in the city who are saying there is no problem and then blacks in the city who are saying there is a problem and there's been a problem for um, a very long time. And so it's really critical that uh, people seek out uh, independent information and that they um, evaluate the information on its merit and come to conclusions that not only support what they thought they knew, but be okay with saying, I didn't know that, here's what I found out. And for some people, I think, who are journalists that have been here for a very long time, they have to live in the community, they're connected with people in the community, and so they either don't, you know, really consider the evidence, or they ignore it and go along with the narrative um, that has been set forth for decades. Last year was like a crazy year as far as Baton Rouge, but did you read a lot of news around um, around July? Oh, certainly. So I read what you know many people were saying, and you know beyond just reading the news. Although again, I did read um, especially um, op-ed pieces from people that I've worked with in Baton Rouge. 
firms like um, Pastor Raymond Jensen at Starville, who's also the CEO of Metromorphosis, who was born and raised in Baton Rouge. He wrote an op-ed piece, which I think was in the New York Times, mm-hmm. and so he and he was talking about the flood and about how you know the flood was not did not wash away all of these other issues that are still going on. It was particularly talking about race. I read an op-ed, an op-ed piece by Chris Tyson, who's a law professor and also a longtime resident of Baton Rouge. Uh, and again, mm-hmm. he was also talking about a city divided. And so, you know, those things I could read and I could, un- you know, understand what was happening before I got here in 2013. I can understand what, you know, factors contributed to the summer of uh, 2016, but some of the other language about, you know, that um, indicated that protesters or, you know, outside agitators, that kind of language reminded me of um, Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, where you had white clergy and undoubtedly some black clergy who was uh, basically arguing that he didn't belong uh, in Birmingham and that he was an outsider. And, of course, he talks about how, you know, threats of justice anywhere is something that people should um, respond to. And so that kind of language about outside agitators and claiming that um, many of the protesters were from outside of the city is right out of the racial um, American racial playbook, whereby we try to discredit a movement and try to act as if there was never a problem before until people from other places started coming in, instead of acknowledging that there was a problem before, there's still, there was a, and there still is a problem today that has to be addressed. I feel like if that's not a book already, the American racial playbook, I think you, I just... You just came up with another one <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> but that actually is making me think of, because I, I feel like pe- a lot of people have said this on Twitter, at least, like I just read a lot of threads, and they're just saying the same thing. It's like this, the same stories happen every time a situation occurs. It's the same. Right. Do you feel like through your research, just in general, do you see that? Like, have you seen that lacrosse? Like, like how far back? Have you done research and has it, have you seen the same thing over and over and over, no matter what the topic of race? So I am right now preparing for a panel discussion on Wednesday about race and uh, wealth and public policy at, um, in, in the School of Journalism, um, part of the um, symposium that they do every year and so so I've been looking at this issue of uh, race and uh, wealth and equality and black asset uh, policy and the role of um, public policies in particular and I mean I go back to the 1600s I go back to when the first of uh, people of African ancestry were settled in uh, Jamestown, and you look at um, later on different barriers that they, uh, their descendants, and others who came later had in terms of you know uh, their not only their inability to acquire land, but having to work unpaid and you know be to live under a system of terror that made the dominant group uh, wealthy. And then if you want to, um, I, I focus on Special Field Order 15, which famously was supposed to give blacks 48 
40 acres and a mule and how that was revoked and, con- and I contemplate what may have happened if blacks did receive, uh, black people did receive those 40 acres and a mule and then to move on to the system of sharecropping and to see sharecropping not as physical bondage but as economic bondage. Uh, we could go further looking at um, the New Deal and the list really just goes uh, on and on. With all the research you've done, say you're me, 24-year-old journalist, and you're coming to Baton Rouge, and there's so much you don't know. When you're working on a story, um, do you think it's beneficial to reach out to you, um, read certain books about like the history of the city, both? Or what would you think would be best to be able to tell a whole story, especially when race is a major factor of a lot of things in Baton Rouge and Louisiana? All right, so um, I was thinking about that. I want to be realistic because I also recognize the, um, the time constraints that journalists are under in more, in, you know, contemporary times. So, you know, gone are the days where you could necessarily work on a story for a week or for two weeks or for a month. You know, a lot of people, whether it's um, you know just on social media or other platforms, uh, are looking for information instantaneously. And so it's you know there's this expectation that you 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 have to be first. So if you're not first, you have to be second. And and so. You know, it's a special kind of person who's able to do, you know, these three and four part series and to really dig into these issues. But it should actually be the opposite. I mean, yes, we should get information as quickly as we can. But if the information doesn't put um, the story into an appropriate context, then it's really not that useful, uh, in my opinion. But I do concede that the issue of time is something that has to be addressed and has to be uh, dealt with. But I think that there are many ways to try to get information if you're coming to a new place or if you're in a place that you've always been but dealing with a issue and that is really to you know to hit the streets and talk to the people you know who know what's going on and we can point you to other people who uh, might be able to give you more information you have institutions that are long-standing so if you come to baton rouge you could always and you want to deal with issues of race you can head to southern and see who's doing work on race and what can they tell you you can come to lsu and see who's doing work on race we have one of the uh, only African and African American studies programs in the state. So why not reach out to you know AAAS at LSU? Uh, most uh, institutions of uh, higher uh, learning have some Office of Strategic Communication. They have some list on their website of experts on a host of issues. And so I mean, there's really no excuse for not reaching out. Uh, to people, you can also go to Amazon and do a search and who's written a book that's at LSU or in Baton Rouge or, you know, someone nationally that might be able to um, give you some insight. And if you can't talk to that person, read the book, (laughs) you know, um, or quote them and quote them uh, uh, accordingly. So there are lots of strategies and lots of things that people can do, but I understand that in the rush to be first or to try to put information out as soon as 
it's possible to meet the public demand that that doesn't always happen. But it, but it's important. Um, and so if journalists don't have this knowledge base already uh, so that they can tap into, you know, what they should have learned as undergraduates or as graduates, then they really um, should, I think, see it as their responsibility to do some legwork, even if they have to follow up with additional information later. So with that said, I know this is like a big question. Do you believe that one soon or maybe one day or eventually the stories you read won't annoy you in the way that they're in the American racial playbook, you know, just playing into that? Or do you think one day that stories will be able to provide more context to inform like the residents of the city and, you know, on a basic level? No, I think that there are going to still be stories that are going to annoy me because there are always going to be people who lack knowledge and information, who, who don't even seek it out, um, or that uh, they have been led to believe that um, some of what they're seeing is just purely enter for entertainment purposes only, uh, that some of what they're seeing is just apolitical, that... Uh, People of color are just reading too much into things and that they're playing a race card or that women are playing a gender card. So that uh, that's always going to be with us. So that means that it's going to be difficult and challenging for me to consume some types uh, of information for a very long time. I mean, oftentimes I find myself reading posts on social media or looking at news programs or hearing even some people in the current administration president's cabinet speak and um, all I can say is they need a they need a triple AS course, they need an African an African American studies course, they need a history course, they need a civics course, they need something because you know if you think that black colleges were about school choice then you really have a problem. Uh, but but this is the kind of information that you know some in the highest places in government are peddling that gets repeated uh, by uh, some journalists or what passes for journalism and it's really really sad. Or even you know um, I know you're really into sports and we know that uh, just on April 15th you know lots of people were celebrating Jackie Robinson Day with Major League Baseball. And, you know, taking nothing away from Jackie Robinson, um, who, you know, was a great fighter for civil rights in addition to being a great uh, professional baseball player and excelling in other sports at the collegiate level. But, you know, sometimes you just want to yell at the TV and say he was not the first African-American to play professional baseball. Have you heard of Moses Fleetwood Walker? You just want to ask people, and they, you know, will look at you in shock and disbelief. And I'll just tell them, I'll say, hey, don't take my word for it. Use your skills. Google it. Go see. You know, find out for yourself. And people are just really astonished at how much they don't know. And so, in many we as a society are failing one another. We're failing in our um, pursuit of, and you know, of communicating knowledge by not sharing, you know, basic facts about American history, about the history of race relations, and, and etc. You know, on a high note, um, uh -huh. I saw read in in the report that your goal is to address community identified needs in your role at LSU. Or how have you done that in your eyes? How do you plan to do it in the future? 
Sure. So I would say that there's always more that I can do, but <laughs> no matter where I live or where I go, I think that um, my that I have a responsibility to uh, participate in the community where I live, and that um, the the PhD that I have should not just be used to. Um, publish in academic journal, journals and books that only you know other sociologists are going to read, but it should be used to support the work that people are doing at a grassroots level. The book um, South Baton Rouge just came out in January, which I co-authored with Pastor Jensen, highlights the historic South Baton Rouge neighborhood. Some people refer to it as Old South Baton Rouge. Others refer to it as the Bottoms. But it's the community immediately surrounding LSU. And it's so rich in history, including the 1953 bus boycott and other events that, you know, I was surprised that there wasn't a book that was focused specifically on the contribution of African Americans from that neighborhood. So I asked Pastor Jensen to join me uh, in writing it. So we were successful uh, in, in doing that. And what's important about the quote that you um, mentioned to me is that these are community-identified needs. So it's not me coming into Baton Rouge or, call, or going into Albany, New York, when I lived there, or deny it where I grew up and say, hey, this is what you need. I'm here to come and save the day. So it's, it's for me to find out, well, what are some of the needs? What is it that you all are trying to do? And then to think about ways that I might be helpful in helping them to think about how to obtain those goals or if they've already done that, you know, where can I fit in and how can I be helpful? And that's my, that's my goal and that's my real purpose uh, in life. That is awesome and inspiring to be quite honest. So my last question um, so you have, so you have, how many more books do you want to write? <laughs> so I will say that maybe, you know, four or five books ago, I said, that's the last book. I'm never writing another book. <laughs> so I, with every book I say that, but I, I become inspired to write books based upon my experiences, based upon, um, the academic literature. But um, to be honest, I think that well, I have a book project I'm trying to complete now that focuses on uh, colorism and the preference for uh, lighter skin uh, people versus darker skin people within the uh, African American experience. So uh, if that goes through, that'll be out maybe at the end of the year or next year. But uh, one thing I'd like to study is the life of Abe Hawkins. And Abe Hawkins may be a name that many people don't know, but I would like to do more research and tell a story. And not to go into too many details, but he was a famous black jockey from Louisiana um, mm. at Ashland uh, Plantation. And he was a slave there, went on to New York to do very, you know, well for himself. But, you know, there's not a lot of details about his life story. So I think I'd like to investigate a little bit more about Abe Hawkins and to um, maybe write a book about him. That, that is awesome. So that was all the questions I have. Do you have anything you wanted to add or thought about before or at, while we were talking? Only thing I can say, Bria, is I'm very proud of you and everything that you've done, and it's been my pleasure to be on this um, call with you to talk about these issues, and 
I expect nothing but great things from you and that I believe that with, if we have more people who are like you, that the future of journalism is in great hands. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast because I was, I mean, I follow your stuff. I love reading your stuff, but also like I still learn from you. Like I'm Googling things after you talk about them, stuff like that. So, oh, 